Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalbor Rohash and I'm a senior fellow with the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends Giselle Donnelly, I'm also at AEI, and Julia Zoja with the Middle East Institute at Georgetown University. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have emerged along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Mitar Bechev, a lecturer at the University of Oxford and a visiting scholar at um, Carnegie Europe. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Julia, um, without any further ado, I'd like to turn to you to uh, introduce our guest and to frame the conversation, which will be heavily tilted, as I understand it, towards security in the Black Sea region. Yeah, um, security and the and I guess the problems of security in the Black Sea, particularly Turkey and um, Bulgaria, and we certainly have a lot of news nowadays um, with Turkey um, in connection to NATO. Um, Dimitar, our guest today, thank you for joining. It's fantastic um, that you are with us today. Has recently published um, his latest book, um, Turkey under Erdogan, and I think also recently wrote an article, um, I think it was in Politico, about how Turkey is um, between a rock and a hard place when it comes to Russia. And I want to start here kind of broadly as we're looking into the role of Turkey in the region and vis-a-vis this conflict. Um, In my understanding, the complicated relationship between Turkey and Russia has gotten a lot more complicated in the context of Syria. Um, And at the same time, Erdogan has been feeding his domestic um, audience a lot of pro-Putinism, a lot of anti-Americanism, and is now looking, at least from a bird's eye perspective, like he placed his bets wrongly and um, has a problem with um, with the audience, the monster sort of that he built, but also in terms of how to get rid of several problems like the S-400s, um, like his position within as a NATO member. So, um, Dimitar, turning to you, um, in, in this broad context, help us make sense of where Turkey is right now in relationship to Russia and to this conflict? Well, as you said, Turkey has a very complicated relationship with Russia. On the one hand, um, it's a historical rival of of Russia's, and it does feel threatened by Russia's expansion, not least uh, after the annexation of Crimea, which turned the Black Sea into uh, a Russian lake, as Erdogan famously put it during this spell when they were adults in Syria in early 2016. Uh, But at the same time, Turkey sees itself as an autonomous player um, in between the West and Russia, but also China. And a key to its ambition to play such a leading role is to be able to talk both to the US and its main European allies, and and to Russia. Uh, And finally, uh, Turkey feels vulnerable to Russia. That's something that we'll probably explore later in the the conversation. So those 
different motivations play into Turkish policy that you have to balance the Russians, but at the, t- the same time you cannot burn bridges uh, and to protect what Erdogan and his um, inner circle believe to be the Turkish national interest, you have to do geopolitical business with Putin. That's the short answer to your question. Maybe just slightly following up on that, on on the dependence that um, Erdogan has built in the end and already had to a certain extent to Russia, is it all about tourism on one side and on the other side about refugees and how um, Turkey is a lot better used to how Russia is instrumentalizing refugees like in 2015 to uh, flood the region, to destabilize the whole continent. Um, is is that where his dependencies lie vis-a-vis uh, Putin? Well, there are many different levels of, of dependence. Um, I won't focus on refugees uh, in particular, although this is a, a big piece of it, uh, but rather point in Syria where Russia has become a, a kingmaker or power broker, if you will. And that's something that Turkey internalized after 2015, that in order to uh, get things done in, in Syria, um, including controlling a piece of the state in, in the north, you have to work with Russia. There is no way around Putin. Having said that, uh, to Turkey's credit, that's the only NATO member state that actually fought against Russia. Um, in early 2020, uh, there was this episode in Idlib, again, this critical piece of, of land uh, in the northwestern part of Syria, where um, Turkey lost 34 servicemen to a Russian airstrike, but eventually managed to push back, and I mean, preserving the fig leaf that it was like not fighting Russia, but fighting the Assad regime, and set um establish facts on the ground and, and uh, draw a red line uh, before the Russians and Russia pulled back. Same thing in Libya, although the particulars are a bit more um, um, complicated in the sense that Russia is not formally on the ground in Libya as it is uh, in Syria. So Russia uh, has um, ways to influence Turkey by being it in its backyard. But also Turkey has pulled no punches where its national interest uh, has been at stake. I think the real line of dependence uh, has to do with the economy. So tourism is one piece, but also energy. Because uh, since the 2000s, Turkey emerged as the second, um, depending on the year, of course, second largest market for Russian gas exports. Uh, This percentage has gone down since but still Russia supplies um, up to and beyond one-third of, of Turkish gas, and Turkey is, is a big consumer. So if Russia wants to stir trouble in Turkey, it has lots of leverage, and that's one lesson learned from the previous crisis, 2015-2016, uh, coming short of the Article 5 security guarantee without mounting a direct attack on Turkey which will trigger NATO. Russia can do a lot of mischief and make Erdogan's life difficult if it wants to be the spoiler, and be it through the Kurds, through Syria, through targeted uh, energy sanctions, through uh, the tourist sector, 
through actually um, keeping Turkish construction business off limits in Russia. That's something they tried in 2015. There's a way to impose economic costs on Turkey, and that's why Turkey feels vulnerable, uh, but not um, helpless uh, facing Russia, of course. Well, if I may, um, you wonder whether there has been, you know, something of a substantial pendulum swing to try to push push Russian influence off. I, mean, I think we should include the you know, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh uh, war, for example, which, uh, you know, was view, at least widely viewed as a big moment for the Turks. And obviously the, the role of uh, Turkish support to the Ukrainian military has been critical. So, I mean, in some ways between being between a rock and a hard place defines all of Turkish foreign mm. policy, you know, with, with, with all, uh, all of his neighbors. But, um, and especially now with the, facing the prospect of a pretty substantial Russian setback uh, in Ukraine, whether Erdogan sees an opportunity to sort of, if not get the upper hand, then, then equalize the relationship or, or you know, the Russians may need him as much or more than vice versa. That's absolutely the case. I mean, it's, um, you put your finger on something really important um, and start with Ukraine, which is what keeps us awake at night. Most Everybody of starts with Ukraine. <laughs> um, that's a relationship that many people overlooked that uh, for all those years, Turkey cultivated a very robust relationship with, 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 with the Ukrainians. I mean, if you consider the standard toolbox of Turkish diplomacy, those government-to-government meetings that they have with the Russians and with others, other neighbors, it's been in place with Ukraine since, since day one. Um, if you think about the Turkish construction business, well, the stadium in Donetsk, which was damaged during um, um, the first phase of the war back in 2014-2015, was built by a Turkish contractor. Uh, Turkey imports uh, food from Ukraine, supplies cement to Ukraine, and now, of course, the military defense um, piece is um, picking up steam because Turkey looks at Ukraine as a possible source of components and technology for its own industries. So Ukraine has always been a partner for Turkey, and now we are seeing the results with the Bayraktar's, with the, the drones Turkey has been supplying one way or the other to the Ukrainians. And it's part of a strategy for Turkey, uh, which includes not just the Ukrainians, but also the Georgians, and to some degree, the Moldovans and and Azeris of not confronting Russia directly, but self-balancing it, if you will, by building all those partnerships and, and strengthening relations in order to even the playing field, which, as you said, is tilted in Russia's favor. And not to forget one other thing we discover uh, is NATO is as relevant to Turkey as ever. Um, Turkey, there's a huge gap between Turkish rhetoric, which of course highlights Turkey's independence, autonomy, being a regional power and not needing anybody's support. But in actual fact, if you want to balance Russia, uh, the multilateral guarantee that NATO provides is as essential as ever. And as a result, I think 
the Turkish policy community, irrespective of which side of the political spectrum they belong to, but even more importantly, the Turkish public, which, as we know, is very anti-Western in their mindset, typically support NATO. So there is an exception given to NATO. The, the importance to national interests is well recognized in Turkey. And it actually, if you're cynical enough, you can argue that what Erdogan does with Putin uh, is reliant on having NATO as the insurance policy. Turkey can freelance a little bit because if it knows if the chips are down and there is attack against Turkey, NATO come into play, despite all the anti-American rhetoric grievances that NATO was not there for Turkey in Syria, which is, of course, heart of area. Um, we have to recognize that this particular crisis actually shows us, but also to Turkey, how important NATO is, still is, as in the days of the Cold War. It's a perfect segue into the question I was going to ask you. It's almost as if you were a regular on this show, reading, our, don't, don't reading the minds of the, <laughs> of, the, of, the, of the hosts. Um, so I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on... Uh, on the role that Turkey plays uh, in the alliance and the relationship with, with, with the United States, which is in Washington very often framed in sort of domestic politics and personalistic terms, right? So Trump loved the strong man that, that, that is Erdogan, um, whereas Turkey doesn't really fit well within, you know, the framing of the you know, alliance of democracies, united by 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 the same values that seems to be closer to them to the minds and hearts of 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 people in the current white house uh but there is relatively little i think in terms of sort of sober thinking about how to engage with turkey as it currently exists how to make it easier for turkey to do the right thing including in this present crisis where there has been a what you described as a sort of mixed role in which in which turks have to you know, deal with Russia and, and have their own interests, but they have also supplied, you know, they, they have supplied drones to Ukraine, but they haven't joined nice. the, the anti-Russian uh, sanctions. So, so I wonder, um, you know, what, what, what combination of sort of carrots and sticks have been used by, 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 by the U.S. and could be used by the U.S. in order to mold Turkey into a more reliable a uh, more constructive partner in the region. Well, it's beyond NATO. It's the bilateral relationship, which is as central as ever. And it has gone from bad to worse, let's be honest, for the past decade or so. Um, in order to be the devil's advocate for, for many Turks, at least the policymakers, the critical moment was Obama's failure to enforce the red lines in August 2013, which signaled that on a critical issue that they cared about, the US was absent. And then, of course, there was the blame game. Was it Turkey turning a blind eye to ISIS first? Or was it the US aligning with a PKK affiliate? Uh, so who was the, the... What was the original sin? Yeah, who, who did the first step to offend the other? But anyways, it's, it's a difficult relationship. Uh, but yet, um, um, Turks have a demand they want to modernize the air force and that's a separate big issue what happened to this branch of the the military services in turkey also in the aftermath of the failed coup um turkey was kicked out from the f-35 consortium which carries 
strategic price, but also has economic implications for the Turkish defense industry. And as a replacement, as a sweetener, now they actually are asking the U.S. government to supply them with modernization kits for their aging fleet of F-16s. Uh, and their colleagues who are much more versed into the technical uh, details of uh, this particular transaction uh, and what it takes and what what is at stake. What I can say, though, uh, is that um, for Turkey, that's really important right now because some of its key competitors in the region, including Greece, have been upgrading their air forces. Also, Russia uh, is next door. Uh, and something has, has to be done. Um, now, uh, politics kicks in, and at least the U.S. relationship with Turkey, is, you could argue, is much more transactional, and that's probably the Trump legacy, uh, compared to the relationship EU has with, with, with Turkey, where certain infringements on democracy and human rights abuses, now there's a sentence against a prominent Turkish philanthropist, it sets limits to how much pragmatism uh, the EU can uh, apply to the relationship. But with the US, you can do geostrategic business because there is shared interest in containing Russia. So I think the Biden administration is willing to entertain the Turkish demand. Uh, but then it lends into the inbox of lawmakers. Uh, the Hill is really important in setting the agenda. And the opinions are very polarized there. And that's a clear legacy of the Erdogan era. Um, Back in the day, in the nineties, there were always hiccups. There's never been a perfect relationship between the U.S. and Turkey, but there were strong voices in in Washington arguing Turkey's case that we have to forgive whatever democratic shortfalls Turkey might have, and human rights and the Kurdish issue and so on and so forth, as long as it was uh, doing the right things in the Middle East and the Black Sea area. Now this goodwill is is over. Um, Across the uh, across the aisle, actually, in in Congress, you have lawmakers on both sides, both GOP and Democrats, who have access to grind vis-a-vis uh, -vis Turkey. So um, the F-16, in other circumstances, the F-16 deal would have been a no-brainer to help Turkey modernize its air force at a critical moment and protect the alliance and help Ukraine and so on and so forth. But there is a lot of ill will vis-a-vis -vis Turkey, uh, and for, for good reason, given all the acrimonious rhetoric and conspiracy theories pewned by the, the ruling ruling party. Uh, it will take a lot of uh, cool heads on both sides to iron it out, and maybe to make another segue to the, your next question. <laughs> I suspect you'll be asking me about Sweden and Finland. Uh, and that's it's not really help, helping the conversation to get down to earth uh, on those matters either. Meaning it's not helping the Turkish cause. I don't know. I mean, if, if, as we discussed before the podcast, that um, Erdogan's uh, statement, which is typical Erdogan, abrasive and pulling out punches, was then qualified by Ibrahim Kalan, his advisor, his trying to say, look, it's more complicated. We have our reservations, but it's not that we are obstructionists. We will welcome those countries and their net contributors. 
um, which maybe suggests, and that's my cynical take on Turkish politics, that it was either an emotional outburst or if there was a strategy behind what Erdogan had to say, it was an opening bit in a back and forth behind the scenes that maybe Turkey will, of course, it will uh, go along with the policy adopted by NATO, but it will try to extract some concessions. And to Turkey's credit, again, uh, going back to a very different part of Europe that I study in Southeast Europe, there's this whole narrative that Turkey is playing the same game as, as Russia, but on NATO enlargement in particular, Turkey has never been an obstructionist. It welcomed Montenegro into the alliance. Uh, it didn't create any uh, problems for North Macedonia joining. If it's down to Turkey, they'll have Bosnia tomorrow uh, with a fully functioning membership action plan. Uh, so there's not much evidence to suggest that Turkey is, is trying to undermine NATO. Uh, and that's why I think that eventually there will be a, some, some sort of solution, maybe a face saver. And what happens in terms of if there's a political deal behind the scenes, we'll find out later on. But I don't expect that Turkey will dig its heel and fight um, until the bitter end. And just to open another parenthesis, a few maybe a year or two ago, there was something reminiscent in the sense that Turkey was trying to say no to some parts of NATO's contingency plans for deployments in the eastern flank and tried to link it to aid on, on Syria, but eventually it didn't go anywhere. Uh, so that was ironed out. And I don't, I don't expect anything else will happen uh, when it comes to Finland or Sweden. Maybe this is a way to segue just briefly before we look at, because I know we want to look at Turkey in the Black Sea in the future, but before we do that, to um, briefly segue into Bulgaria and where these countries lie, I guess, if you can compare them when it comes to strictly Black Sea security. Back in, when was it, 2016, There was a proposal from the Romanian government to create, in the context of the Warsaw Summit and NATO, of NATO coming up, to create a NATO Black Sea fleet, so a maritime presence of NATO in um, the kind of closed sea and with the difficulties. Um, and what happened was that um, initially Turkey didn't say much. Bulgaria said, yeah, we're game. And then Bulgaria turned 180 degrees and uh, put Romania on the spot in front of cameras, literally, and said, no, 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 we don't want a NATO Black Sea fleet. We want peace and love in the Black Sea. Um, and later on, we found out through WikiLeaks that it was also Turkey that had um, opposed this um this uh, um, idea. And now with the extraordinary summit that we had, what was it a couple of months ago, the idea was not even um, was not even flaunted um, at NATO level, probably also given that the situation has degraded in the Black Sea strictly. And we are in a situation with NATO of total deterrence by Russia. So um, in this context, Where, Dimitar, do you see the two countries positioning themselves, and particularly Bulgaria? Because I personally have been 
given this background, have been positively surprised by Bulgaria, a country that is traditionally more um, Russophilic, where the government has supported EU candidacy of Ukraine, is helping on the military front, um, has been now subjected to cutting of gas from Russia. So help us make sense of how you see this context of Black Sea NATO security. Yeah, it's not an easy one to crack. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right that traditionally Bulgaria's posture has been to accommodate Russia and not to pick up fights. Maybe do what Turkey is doing, to use NATO as a collective <coughs> shield you can hide behind, but not stick your neck out and do anything that Russia would dislike. But um, with some exceptions, of course, in 1999, let's not forget that um, as with Romania, the reason those countries, or one of the reasons those countries started negotiating with uh, with the EU, and I know this is ancient history, but it's still relevant, is that denied uh, Russia overflight rights to to Kosovo to supply their peacekeeper, quote unquote. So there have been moments of of taking risks vis-a-vis Russia, and we are at such juncture because in Sofia you have a coalition where the main decision makers, um, especially the Prime Minister's office, tend to be on the po- most totally pro-Western side. Um, I mean, for instance, on the gas piece, they even before the cutoff, they said that they were not renewing the long-term supply contract. But there's some um, sort of um, limits to how much you can, or how far you can go, because um, public opinion tends to be worried about potential fallback from the crisis. Um, it's a fertile ground for Russian propaganda as well. You have X number of, of speakers, proxies to push the sort of messaging emerging from Moscow. You have a radical party that is going up in popularity ratings, just capitalizing on the moment. Um, and you have Parts of the establishment which are still subscribing to this policy of not taking any risks and just playing it quietly. And the president belongs to this school of thought. And since he is a military man originally, the head of the Air Force, he can argue his case from the position of somebody who is in the security business and he knows what he's talking about and how scary war is. So the fight is not resolved. And very often, Bulgarian foreign policy looks lowest common denominator or trying to have the cake and eat it, right? You subscribe to any initiative NATO proposes, but you don't want to be very conspicuous for the fear of inviting a harsh response by Russia. Um, But yeah, I mean, with this government having the prime minister turn up in Kiev and taking a stand on, on energy... This is pretty remarkable. The question is how sustainable it is all over the longer term. And unfortunately, I don't have an answer. And finally, still to, to suggest that sort of the cautious approach is still there to really think about or look at how Bulgaria framed NATO deployments. Um, there was always this excuse for domestic the domestic public, it won't be a foreign mission that 
there'll be Bulgarian officers in charge. I mean, it was it will be an allied thing, but there won't be a foreign command or foreign forces, which of course is only half. I mean, it's not viable if, if the push comes to shove. You have you have to have a real capable military. Even now, you have the Spaniards and the Dutch providing air policing because the gaps in Bulgaria's capabilities are very obvious to anybody. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's one thing what happens in substance. One another thing how you frame it, and the framing will be a, a arena of, of narrative struggles. The last thing is that the defense minister had to step down because he went too far in this other direction. And he was is somebody very close to the president, who was the caretaker prime minister. Uh, so, yeah, even if the current uh, prime minister wants to do more and he has the right instincts, uh, he'll be constrained domestically and there'll be pushback and it's, it's an uphill struggle. And he might as well decide that Political survival means that he has to tone down the foreign policy sort of a bravado a few notches and, and concentrate on and, and not die on this hill, not fight a foreign policy struggle since people care about domestic affairs much more. Well, even though most of our discussions on the Eastern Front are pretty bleak ones, uh, we do try to sort of, you know, uh, End conversations uh, with a glimpse of sunshine, and this is <laughs> this is primarily my role is to see the the bright distance that that is just over the horizon. It do, look it does seem to me that you know first of all having countries in cautious countries in the second rank is is not a bad thing from a, an American or Western or NATO perspective. Um, access is important. Also, people have begun to realize the consequences of Russia's ambitions in the Black Sea, uh, which are not just regional, but if you consider what's happening with the traditional supply of food and grain from Ukraine are, are really global, um, uh, and especially, uh, you know, will make people in the quote-unquote global south uh, have to suffer over the course of the summer. Um, and and Russia's Black Sea fleet may end the war entirely at the bottom of the Black Sea. And it also it must be an effect on Turkey. Just go back to Turkey for a quick moment. The, I'm sure that they, you know, are losing just money from passage rights uh, 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 when this when the shipping fails to get to the international markets. So it does seem like there's a with a little bit of sustained. Uh, effort, collective effort, and dare I say, American leadership, uh, that there is an opportunity, if if we can stick to it, to sort of uh, both rectify the immediate problem, but create a Black Sea regime uh, that is more stable, more favorable to the liberal international order, or whatever term you want to use, so on and so forth. So, um, at least, if you're going to tell me I'm completely out of my head, let me. No, you're not. Actually, I, I think this is a very, very well placed uh, comment because, again, Kiru Petkov, we turned the conversation from Turkey, which is an important player to Bulgaria, which is less so, obviously. I mean, he was in in DC the other day and he met with Vice President Harris 
amongst other people. And one of the big things that emerged from there is this contract on gas supplies through LNG. And there is a new LNG terminal um, coming on stream next year, hopefully, in, in Greece. So a lot of things are happening on, on the energy front as a result of the conflict. And we are talking about very small or relatively small volumes. It doesn't take that much to supply Bulgaria or even Greece. Um, and that's one of the silver bits of silver lining after this crisis. On the security side, more kind of traditional military security, of course, we are fixated on the naval component and all the um, limitations of the Montreal Convention and whatnot. But if you quantify the on-land deployments and air policing, actually NATO uh, is much more robustly present there. Um, you have the multinational task force in in Romania. I mean, before that, it was just a virtual operation. And of course, Turkey has always been part of it, um, contributing. Now, there'll be a forward presence in Bulgaria as well. Um, the U.S. has bilateral agreements with both Romania and Bulgaria dating back to 2006 or thereabouts. Yes. So American Marines train there and are present. Um, and it's very hard to make the case that actually the U.S. withdrew from the Black Sea because if you look beyond the beach on the Black Sea in, inland, mm. then you see more and more the U.S. and now energy will round that up uh, as well. Of course, the big prize is Turkey. We should not fool ourselves. And if um, this tumultuous, tumultuous relationship with the US, which won't get any better, again, let's be realist, but at least find the models with Vendai and calm down and think about overlapping interests uh, and, and find a deal on F-16 and maybe Turkey does something positive on the S-400s, which is, of course, something that really put a spanner in the works, we'll be in a better position. Um, but yeah, we are not quite there. Um, but a better atmosphere in US-Turkish relations will set the tone. I'm afraid, though, that the pre-election period and the whole Erdogan survival factor won't help that much. And domestic politics and short-term calculations will present an obstacle time and again. That never happens in America. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems to me that the, um, that the lesson learned or what we're looking forward um, in Turkey and in the bilateral relationship is elections. Um, to me, and, and maybe, Dimitar, you want to correct me if I'm wrong, to me, we're all counting down here in the United States to elections, midterm, but also presidential, especially when you look at European worries. Um, but when we're looking at Turkey, it seems to be the same pattern and kind of a blockade, if you'd like, of anything substantial, strategic, moving in the bilateral relationship um, beyond that. Now, um, as we as we're wrapping up, I do want to ask you something that I'm sure um, you've been asked multiple times. I know I have, <laughs> but I'm curious to hear you. Is there any chance because we do come back all the time in the Black Sea to maritime dimension and the Montreux Convention? And I know that the Turks for decades now 
have been banging on and on beyond Erdogan, not just him, about how Montreux should not be changed in any way and how their policy should remain that the Black Sea is for Black Sea countries and hence not for the West to be accessed permanently. Um, is there, do you see any way maybe beyond elections um, or any scenario in Turkey that would permit more of a wiggle room in terms of reconsidering some parts of the Montreux Convention so we can be talking about a maritime presence of NATO or reflagged or whatever um, in the region in the years to come? I'm skeptical. I, I don't see any major shifts. And this conservative attitude is shared across the spectrum. Even if Erdogan's opponents come to power, There's some optimism in Turkey, but I'm, I, I won't hold my breath. It's not a given that they'll actually look uh, consider any revision of, of this regime. So Russia can be safe in the knowledge that there won't be a, any shift. But yeah. short of yeah. an overhaul, maybe we can find ways to project influence. Um, and I mean... Turkey, when it comes to the naval component, is, is quite capable, if you look at capabilities. The problem with Turkey is that uh, it has to take care not just of the Black Sea, but also the Aegean and the Eastern Med. Um, so it's stretched over this whole uh, fulcrum of, 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 of different theaters. Uh, and that's why Russia has an advantage in, in, in the Black Sea. But it will try to balance Russia with its own means and, and cherry-pick on NATO when it, NATO is needed, at the risk of contradicting myself, something I said that NATO is essential. So the pick-and-choose approach will still apply. And I don't think Turkey will take, be it Erdogan or anybody else, will take a radical step to start from scratch and open the Black Sea. Um, I wish that was the case and... and Russia is given a run for its money, but I don't see it with anybody running Turkey. Just, just wait till the mighty Ukrainian Navy. Uh, yes. <laughs> I think we have to wrap Limitar, up now. Limitar, uh, I feel like we could go on and on, but we are also keeping you from important parental duties, as I'm, as I'm, as, as, as I'm told. I, w I was really struck by your description of Bulgarian politics, by the way, which just feels so familiar to somebody who is was born and brought up in Slovakia. I mean, that sort of, you know, mismatch between where the elite in a way is and the current government and where the public is. I think it's, it's, it's a massive source of uncertainty going forward, especially as these energy sanctions start to bite and as the, as the prices take their toll on, you know, family budgets and, 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 and we head into elections. Uh, however, I mean, we need to wrap up. Uh, we should probably do another episode on, be on, 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 on some of the some of the points we haven't had time to, to, to get into in greater detail. Um, thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. Once again, many thanks to our special guest today, Mason Clark. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.